Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Ready Ready Podcast. I'm your host, George Croft. This week's guest of honor is Dr. Tom Hofstra, PhD in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. He's also the head of the Forestry and Natural Resources Department at Columbia College in Sonora, California. And he and I had an awesome conversation about forest fires, fire ecology, and how to prepare your own property to be a little bit more fire ready. So without any further ado, please give a big ready, ready welcome to my friend, Dr. Tom Hofstra. Awesome. Well, hey, yeah, good to hear from you. How have you been? Good. Adapting. Adapting? Is it pretty smoky down there today? Oh, no, it's beautiful blue skies today. Oh, good. Um, yeah, it's a, there's a slight scent of uh, wood smoke in the air, but, and I guess, I mean, yeah, I don't know, it looks like a beautiful day to me, but there's a little bit of smoke, I guess, maybe. Wow, that's awesome. Cool, man. Well, hey, yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. Like I said, we uh, so this uh, I'm doing this episode kind of by popular request. I did sort of a, a brief overview of fire ecology for a previous episode uh-huh. that uh, I got a lot of like interest and feedback on. So I thought you would be the perfect guy to kind of go more in depth on this stuff. Sure, um, I, have, I haven't heard that one, but I did listen to your soil one, which was very interesting. Oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, the basically I did the for the the second episode there it was a um a, the for the news article of the week I did a, this article that was talking about how the like the 2000 year old redwoods had survived that batch of fires that came through and like why that was newsworthy, you know, being that you know fires are burning with higher intensity and all that stuff. Sure. But uh but it turned out great. Yeah. So um so okay, so I've actually got uh, a couple of questions from from listeners and uh so our kind of our just if you kind of imagine where these questions are coming from our our target audience here is guys that are thinking about you know getting into property ownership or they already own property and they're starting to worry about like fire readiness that kind of thing Uh and because right now it's like from from everybody that i talk to everybody seems to like the idea of being able to make your property more fire ready is sort of like it doesn't occur to people right off the bat. They just think like, oh man, especially guys that that don't like haven't ever owned property before and they're just now getting into it. They're worried about, oh, well now there's like, you know, because of climate change, you know, fires are burning more intensely. Like, is this even a good idea? And it's like, well, yeah, there's a whole science to like being able to make your property like sort of not fireproof, but you know, fire adapted sort of. And uh, that's just not brought up a lot. People are people just hear, you know, oh, it's it's because of climate change, and it, with that being the case, there's not much to do about it. And uh, I just, you know, I I don't think that's like the right attitude to have about it. Um, sure. Yeah. So so I guess to kind of kick things off here. So uh, what? Uh, hang on. So what's the uh, like the first thing? Like if someone's picking a property, right? Or someone's property shopping, what is something like, what's one of the first things they should think of when thinking fire adaptiveness? Like what if, like, if you're starting from zero, are there kind of basic like 
features or densities they should look for? I mean, I know that kind of depends on what kind of forest they're in, but like what, what are some things that they should look for that sort of lend like features that lend themselves towards being fire adapted? Sure. Well, first of all, I don't have any property, but I would like it. You know, <laughs> I have a definitely, a, I've had a dream of owning property all my life. And um, so I look at it. And yeah. Here. Yeah. yeah. And I know you've done a heck of a job fireproofing the college campus up there. We're working on it. I mean, uh, we're far from finished, but we're working on it. We've at least got it started. Um, you know, so I look at property and I'll, oftentimes I evaluate it, you know, based on its fire safety more than anything, I guess. Um, you know, in this, in this area, and that's not true of all areas in North America or the world, but in this area, you know, fire is a pre pretty um, normal thing, right? right. Um, fire has been part of these ecosystems for thousands of years. And it's going to continue to be part of this ecosystem for, you know, into the future. Um, and so you kind of always have to go into everything thinking, well, in this area, at least, it's going to burn at some point. Um, and it may burn in a way that will benefit the environment, or it may burn in a way that could be, you know, catastrophic as well. And um, we want to have it burn in as good a way as possible, I guess, right? So our choice is not, is it, you know, is it gonna burn or not? Our choice is gonna be, how is it gonna burn, I right. guess. How, how to make it burn the best. Exactly. Yeah. And I would say, um, you know, with, with all things climate being equal, and when I say climate, I'm talking about the Mediterranean climate that we have here in California, or at least this part of California. Right. Um, have these wet winters um, and and hot dry summers um, it just sets itself up for you know a fire season let's put it that way yeah unavoidable and all the technology that we have to throw at it you know isn't going to stop a fire that's wind driven or um, has heavy fuels um, it's like a force of nature. It's like trying to stop a hurricane or a tornado. Or right, a, exactly, yeah. But, you know, you're not going to do it. So all you can really do is, um, well, not all you can really do, but one of the things that you can do is, um, you know, you were asking about looking at properties, is I would look at the topography first. Um, you know, a flat topography is, is going to be the safest from a fire perspective. Right. Because it allows, you know, Access, yeah, heat's not running uphill towards houses or something. Exactly, the, you know, fire behaves much different on a flat terrain than it does on a on a slope. You know, fire is going to naturally want to go up a slope faster than it travels across a flat terrain. So, um, you know, when I look at properties, I look at the terrain um, because the terrain's not going to change over time, most likely, although the vegetation could very well change over time. You can change the vegetation, um, but topography is not going to change. So, you know, while a house on a hilltop or a ridge top with a beautiful view, um, may be appealing, um, from a fire perspective, it's dangerous. Yes, yeah, it's kind of the worst spot in the, <laughs> yeah. 
it's like water is going to go into a low spot fire is going to go up to a high spot um and so um you know that's one of the things i definitely consider is the topography how steep the terrain is how how rugged it is um you know are you in a canyon that might funnel winds and um you know cause a, a fire to really rush through an area that's a big problem that we have around here um and um that can not only be affected by the weather on the day you know if it's windy and and the wind's blowing in the right direction it can get funneled through a canyon creating even faster winds you know with the venturi effect right isn't that sort of the the santa Ana winds down south with the the big fires like down in the la area that's kind of what's going on there right yeah so during you know when we have a high pressure system that kind of sits over western north america and and low pressure over the over the ocean it it sucks the air from you know the inland parts towards the ocean and you get those offshore winds which are so dangerous um and not only down south in santa Ana, but that contributed to like the paradise fire as well right yeah but those winds around here they call mono winds um, which can be severe sometimes enough to like you know snap trees and stuff like that yeah like um didn't weren't they calling for another one like i know twain Hart had one of those big crazy wind events a couple of years ago and now they were saying there's another one that might happen soon or something there, i heard something about that recently that twain Hart was kind of bracing itself again um they had been predicting that during the last you know a few weeks ago when we had the power shutoffs i think they were anticipating that but that was you know the whole like sierra nevada california was kind of going to experience that we experienced that to a certain extent but not as bad as we did a few years ago when it looked like a tornado hit twain heart yeah um but you know think of like a how that would drive a fire i mean that would yeah. just like the that paradise fire you know it's going to be going you know tens of miles an hour um and that's something that you, you can't keep up with a wind-driven fire like that is you know the firefighters are pretty much um during a wind-driven fire like that are going to try and help evacuate people that's about it right yeah there's not, not much to do for stopping it yeah they're going to try and keep the roads open so people can get out that's about it um but yeah back to you know looking at um at land um topography is a big one um, yeah. um and like even diurnally during the day you know you can get up canyon winds in the afternoon and down canyon winds in the evening and those can be very important driving wildfires as well so i would say the number one thing to look for is topography uh when you know thinking about wildfire yeah. so like, yeah like topography and maybe like wind patterns or like common common wind patterns yeah and i mean you know we're gonna get those winds here in california um but certain certain topographies are gonna make it worse yeah um, like they about the Polga Gap over there east of uh, Paradise where you know the, all the winds from that whole upper Feather River drainage you know have to get funneled through the Polga Gap and um, you know whenever you try and force a bunch of air through a small area it increases in velocity and um, you know results in a more of a of a wind driven fire yeah so topography and then um i would say secondarily um the vegetation um you know there are certain vegetation types which are gonna um be more of a problem for wildfire safety um you know around here chaparral right chaparral is known to burn intensely 
um, you know, with Manzanita. And yeah, I was going to say, and, and actually I was, I was going to ask you about that. I said, and I, I thought I learned this from you actually, but then after I said it on the podcast, I sort of like felt like I should probably ask you just to clarify. I remember, was it you that told me that Manzanita wood burns at a temperature that is hotter than the plants around it can handle, but the Manzanita seeds can. So Manzanita sort of like, it's like fire helps it propagate. Is that true? Yes, manzanita, as many plants around here, require fire for, you know, propagation. Um, and um, they use it to their favor when it comes to competing with other plants that might not be adapted to those conditions. Like, so for instance, let's say a, there's a plant that did not grow up in a fire adapted or did not evolve in a fire adapted, uh, you know, situation like manzanita did. Um, it cannot handle fire and so manzanita can handle fire and it burns it doesn't burn but it, it actually has evolved to promote fire <laughs> so that um you know everything burns and then the manzanita grows right back from the seed or from the roots um and is able to outcompete plants that are not adapted to that you know? yeah and then i know so so kind of like a like throughout history, I suppose, like finding giant manzanita bushes was not really that common, right? Like prior to like the suppression of wildfire, was it like, would it have been less common to find these giant manzanita trees that are like three inches in diameter? Yes. So, yeah. But then we, yeah. But then we had that whole grove of them at the college campus there that was like, there's just, yeah. there's tons of them. They're, they're trees now. Yeah. And um, so the thing it's funny with, you know, human beings, we think that certain things are aesthetically pleasing and, one of the things many human beings find aesthetically pleasing is large old growth manzanitas. Um, but yeah, from a, from an ecological perspective, old growth manzanitas are um, not what you would expect uh, from the yeah. fire we have around here. Yeah. So yeah. exactly. I mean, they're beautiful when they get that old and big, but they're not, um, you know, it's, it would be like, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I can't think of uh, a good analogy, but um, those manzanitas were not designed evolutionarily right. to live that long. Let's put it that way. You know? Yeah, I know. It's like it's crazy because the wood looks really interesting too. Like when you like when you have a manzanita tree that thick and you you know cut it down with a chainsaw, manzanita wood is like really pretty looking. It's just you never like like you don't normally see it in that context. It's normally just like a small shrub. You know? <laughs> Yeah, it's gorgeous. Um, and, you know, uh, there's a big market for it because they use it for um, for uh, cages for birds and reptiles and stuff. For oh, wow. Yeah, so you can actually, uh, if you have manzanita on your property and you don't want it, uh, you know, you could sell it probably on, on eBay if you really wanted to, to <laughs> the right people for lots of money. Wow, that's awesome. So... So when people are kind of getting into this stuff and looking at their vegetation and looking at, like, they've got the topography of their land figured out, they know what kind of vegetation they're dealing with, and they've kind of, because I know it's it's tough to ask, like, for specific densities and, like, specific plant-type plans and stuff, because every property is going to be different. Sure. But But let's say people, like, they figure out what, like, a healthy density, let's say they have, like, you know, like a, let's, let's say somebody's dealing with a property much like that of columbia college's campus right you're in that like foothills with manzanita and oaks and a little bit of pines and all that. like that that let's imagine that sort of a mixture because i feel like that's pretty common throughout the foothills of california sure um so let's say they've got that all figured out and they 
and they start to learn about like proper densities and they're selecting for healthy trees. So what, like, where should people go? Cause I know it's not really advisable for people to just start broadcast burning their own properties. Right. Like, and even, even people that don't know what they're doing should probably not just immediately start doing burn piles. Right. Like where, where should people go to figure out how to do this? Like if they needed like one-on-one -on -one help. Huh? Well, that's a good question. Um, come to you come to Columbia College right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> got to do that but if you're not into that um, there are a number of you know fire safe councils around that could provide um, expertise um, and there are even some fire safe councils especially Native American ones that are specializing in the use of fire um, shit, you can learn a lot on YouTube these days yeah it's not too hard to learn about this kind of stuff, but yeah, I agree. Um, uh, a little bit of knowledge can be dangerous. Um, yeah. Um, when you're talking about fire, it can be especially dangerous. So it helps to have um, a little bit of insight and uh, maybe some experience, but I'm torn because um, at this point, I think uh, everyone should have a drip torch in their garage, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they've got a, a weed whacker and a, and a lawnmower we don't have lawnmowers around here but you know a chainsaw yeah uh, uh i think it's that important of a tool um and if if we weren't so out of whack right now in terms of the fuels that we have on the landscape it would be a lot safer right yeah if, if everyone had always had a drip torch in the garage we might not be in as bad a shape as we're currently in <laughs> if we hadn't been putting out fires you know at, by 10 a.m like the 10 a.m policy said starting in the early 1900s and instead had been broadcast burning you know since then and thinning um the fire danger would would be much lower and and there wouldn't be as much you know risk of a person uh starting a fire that escaped Right. Uh, but yeah, these days, um, you, you need to have a little bit of training for sure before you start setting um, fire to your property. You need to understand how fire moves on the landscape, you know, a little bit about fire behavior, um, what, what impacts, you know, the, um, the movement of fire, whether it be slopes or wind or fuel, um, weather conditions that can um, affect the behavior of the fire, like temperature and humidity and wind which we mentioned already um and then how to control fire because it's important they be able to control it right once, um, you, not, once you get it going yeah and it's not that difficult all you really need to do is you know scratch a line in the dirt um if weather conditions are favorable um and hopefully they are favorable when you're starting fires on your own property um you yeah. don't want to be you know starting a broadcast burn when there's winds forecasted or when there's you know high temperatures or low humidity um right you want it you know low winds and you know moderate humidities and lower temperatures so that the fire behaves in a way that you can control it right um i think you know when i think about prescribed fire in my head i see uh you know six to eight inch flames that are creeping around in the duff uh at a very slow rate um and the best prescribed fire is boring you know it's right and you know <laughs> there's not much yeah. going on here it's pretty boring um when um when you start getting the the butt pucker you know that's a bad <laughs> situation <laughs> yeah that you know um you don't want to be in 
Um, so, um, and, and to get that low intensity flame, you know, you need to have the right conditions. And yeah. Well, well that too. And I guess, I guess it's important to point out too, though, like, like at least when I've done broadcast burns with you, it's like to do a 10 acre broadcast burn required first, like a couple of days of 30 students out there removing ladder fuels and raking things into piles where we can and making it like, like, it's not like you just go out to something that's not fire adapted and immediately start using fire as the first tool. It's like, it, it takes a lot of, I mean, it's doable. It just takes a lot of like prep and, and yeah. like it's, yeah. Fire is sort of like the last cause, like it's the last cleanup bit of your, of your property management. Right. Exactly. It kind of polishes it off. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So my other question, so I've got kind of, so I'll, okay, I'll, I'll lead into one with the other here, but so, okay. So let's say someone buys a property in an area that has been like severely mismanaged, right? So let's say they're in more of like the Alpine region there in California, like up from the foothills where you've got like just huge swaths of the forest that are dead from beetle kill. Like the mixed conifer forest. Yeah. Yeah, Alpine. exactly. Or, yeah. It's yeah. Excuse, excuse me. I'm, I'm, I'm rusty, but, uh, but yeah, so like how, how much room do you really need? Let's say there's a wildfire just ripping through an area like that, which is like really overly dense and dry now and, and all this stuff. How, <clears throat> excuse me, how much room do you have to give your house to actually be safe? Like, is it possible to like, okay, my house is there, but I've got, you know, like a hundred yard radius between my house and any trees that are coming around. Like, is that like, I mean, as long as you've got maybe like a metal roof and a lot of clearance, like a raging wildfire, like how far will that radiant heat actually torch your house? Yeah. Um, it's not so much the radiant heat as the embers that get thrown by the wind. That's going to set your house on fire. Um, so, um, you know, I couldn't tell you in terms of the distance for radiant heat, but I would, I would defer to the Cal Fire guidelines for defensible space on that. Yeah. Um, but um, interesting. You know, as long as the fire stays on the ground, I mean, you can have fire right up to your house. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. But but I'm, um, I'm picturing I'm picturing people like buying property that is not fire adapted and then going about the work of making it that way. It's like if you're in the middle of the forest that's about to get moonscaped in a couple of years when a when a rager comes through. Yes. How much work can is like? Is it even possible to make that safe? Um, it's not possible to make your house safe um, with a with a wind driven wildfire. It's, I mean, the way the houses are built these days. Right. I mean, if you made your house out of metal and concrete and had like metal window shutters and um, were able to like close off all the vents on your house, and if you have gutters on your house or whatever, there aren't any, you know debris in it like leaves or needles um you might be able to withstand a, a wind-driven wildfire i mean you look at these communities like i mean take like the tubs fire santa rosa or even the paradise fire. right so yeah paradise yeah these communities the trees are still there right in many cases they're still green and it's just the houses that burned right mm. and that's because you essentially had wind-driven embers that could have traveled from a mile away um and they landed in a you know, a little nook on your roof or um, where there was maybe just a handful of dry leaves and that started your house on fire. Right. Um, usually how these houses ignite is wow. from driven embers that um, sometimes they get sucked into the, the you know, the vents. Right, attic. like attic vents or something. Yeah. yeah. 
or crawl spaces. Um, and that's really how the houses are igniting. It's not so much from, you know, the radiant heat from a, a forest burning, um, you know, 50 feet away or 20 feet away or something like that. Gotcha. Okay. So how much of a difference do you think having like a metal roof makes? Cause, cause tar shingled roofs, like if they get hot enough, that tar is going to catch on fire, right? Like that's like, like well, a tar shingled roof is not like a, like a fire resistant thing, is it? No, I don't believe so. I'm not an expert in, in the flammability of uh, tar roofs, but um, I would say metal roof is right. uh, definitely a good investment. Um, or a tile roof, although tile roofs have a lot more sort of nooks and crannies in them. Yeah, and I would imagine maintenance costs on a tile roof is probably a little bit more over time, maybe. I, mean, yeah. I guess that's that's just me speculating. But Ultimately, I think, I mean, the best thing is to have like an earthship style house where it's like, you know, buried earth. <laughs> right. <laughs> is that yeah. like Dug into the side of a hill or something. Exactly. You know, like, um, who's the architect uh, that designed or invented earthships? I can't believe I forgot his name yeah. but yeah you know yeah I, I picture like luke skywalker's house you know in the beginning of star wars just <laughs> um and you know those are great houses to build especially if you're into the whole off the grid on your own thing because they're energy efficient you know don't really need that much heating and cooling and they're going to be more fire safe than anything else you see around yeah but okay yeah. so but in but in general here so let's say like if people are not going to go so far as to dig their house into the ground Sure. If they're if they're thinking about doing this, like there there's like there is a quite a bit of mitigation. It seems like you could do if you buy a property, even if it's in sort of like a dense area. If you pick a good flat piece of property in an area that is not like commonly experiencing high winds, and you get a good like healthy density on your own property, you get your house in a good position for the wind, and you have a metal roof. Like you should be sitting pretty good if you were able to like optimize all of those things, right? Like you're off to you're at least off to a much better start. Sure, a metal roof for sure. And there's other things, you know, um, stucco or some type of concrete siding. Right. Um, you know, all, most of the houses, including my house around here, are built out of that T111 stuff. Which, right. Made out of the same stuff that the forest is made out of, um, it's gonna burn. Right. Um, so yeah, siding um, fence with um, with mesh of a small enough size that sparks can't get in, embers can't get. Oh, that's in, interesting. Or better yet, um, little shutters that you can cover, you know, your vents with in a hurry if you needed to. When you look at um, buildings that are being prepped, like in advance of wildfires, like a Baker Station, for example, when the Dardanelle fire happened, um, we had a few days of, you know, uh, warning for that one, and um, they covered all the vents. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that was a simple way to keep embers from getting sucked, you know, into a building where they could start a fire, and that was the crawl spaces as well as the attic vents. I, yeah, I guess it makes sense because, like, if the, because, like, a space like that, would sort of create like it would create air movement through there like in a way that you wouldn't naturally think about so like if there's like heat on one side of the house it's going to start dragging air through that vent from the cold side of the house and then when the fire gets there with that with, with all that circulation already going it's just going to suck embers right into your attic or your crawl space right, right? is that kind of what happens yeah and i mean those vents are there to allow air movement so right air moving in and out of them yeah <laughs> wow but yeah they're gonna you know they might yeah, turn, turns your attic into one of those like log fire starter kits you can get <laughs> with like the chainsaw holes in them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
so yeah there's that um and then um you know stuff lying on your house you know like pine needles and leaves which many people don't see that because you can't see your roof in many instances right, right? so that's kind of invisible um, and then anywhere where you have little corners and nooks or crannies where, you know, embers could collect because it's not going to be just one ember. These are like ember storms, right? It's right. Like they get like piled up and then. Ailing, flaming hail. Right? <laughs> Essentially. Yeah. <laughs> it, does. it piles up in corners. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I lament the fact that um, when fires come, they evacuate everyone um, because I think a lot more homes could be saved if people stayed. <laughs> oh dangerous obviously but i think we could save a lot more property if you know yeah there was you know one person with a fire hose um and that doesn't mean that you can put your house out when it's on fire but um but you can watch for the embers and you can right yeah you can't you can't do anything once your house is on fire but you can do a lot to mitigate it starting i would, I would imagine but so what about like so i i think i've seen like i've seen some houses that have like a sprinkler system they'll have like a birdie sprinkler on like the on like the peaks of their house yeah and then just like have something you could just like even if your power is eventually going to go out it's like just you know if you have a well pump or something but and if you're if you're not on a well pump great but if you have good water pressure just throw that thing on and let that birdie sprinkler go if you have to evacuate Definitely. i'd imagine that would be that would also be another way to kind of get ahead of that right yeah and you can install permanent systems like that or you can just you know do it on the fly if you want yeah put it on your house of course um you do run the risk of depleting your community's water supply that is the case um, right and um you know uh that could be a problem but um yeah i've seen it, during the dardanelle fire once again at baker station uh they set up uh sprinklers on tripods all around the buildings oh wow and you know turn that on as the fire went through and you know that built that baker station has got sugar pine wood shingles right? yeah, i was gonna say it's like it, it's not like it was not designed with fire in mind right like <laughs> the the roofs on there are like old wood that's exactly. like ready to go yeah, yeah. that's awesome yeah, systems and they also make other you know commercially available other types of fire retardant systems where you like foam systems where you could foam your whole house down um before the oh. fire and that lasts a little bit longer than just water does it doesn't evaporate as quickly right. and then uh, window shutters you know no one puts shutters on their windows anymore um but you look at the all the old buildings in downtown columbia they all have right. big shutters on them huh and you think it's for that re like you think they did that for fire oh heck yeah oh really wow yeah, because you don't you don't really see like what's funny is now you'll see like cosmetic wood shutters that are like not actually shutters. They're just like facing on the side of the house to make it look like shutters that are open. <laughs> it gives it curb appeal, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Looks like yeah. yeah. It looks yeah, and we good, had, but it's not functional. Yeah, we had those on my house where I grew up in, in Minnesota, non-functional shutters. But at, at, in my grandma's house, right, in Germany. Or spent a lot of time when I was a kid. They had actually had shutters that worked, right? All the houses did. Um, and I don't know why they had them there, but uh, maybe it was like, I don't know why they had them. In Germany? Yeah. yeah. Wow. But, huh. Yeah. Big, beefy shutters. And I don't think it was for fire purposes. It may right. Maybe, like, maybe, a, maybe like if it's cold or something, maybe it's like a heat retention thing. That could be, or maybe it had to do with like the war or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, keep shrapnel out of your house. Uh, or to like, you know, they always had to black out their windows. Oh, like wow. Raids and stuff like that. But I don't know. I think they had shutters on their windows before World War II. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, man. So, okay. So, um, so, okay. The other thing I was going to ask. So, like, so I know, like, I'm, I get, like, with, with what I know of and what you have taught me about, like, the way fire works and the way the fire suppression has contributed to the, like the crazy level of wildfire that we're currently dealing with. I like, I have that in the one hand, but then on the other hand, I see areas that are like, that I've always grown up. Like when I drive through like, like the Valley, like heading to like central California in the Valley there, it's just a vast grassland which I understand was not always the case. Like I know the, uh, was it the San Joaquin river used to just cut all the way through there and now we've got it pretty wrangled into a canal, but, but it's like areas that have not previously had a bunch of fires that I'm aware of are starting to burn now. So it's like, so we like in the forest, you always, you know, you can imagine like a lightning strike, there's a fire and that's, and us stopping that has had an effect, but it's like, but now we're experiencing grass fires doing the same thing ripping through the valley and and that other set of hills there and it's like what is like i mean that's grass that's the same the grass that would get the same height every year they do a pretty good job of grazing that off so why are we experiencing more fires there too though is like because that that seems like less of a management issue because there's like a thriving you know like cattle industry there that's keeping the grass pretty knocked down but we're still having this new wave of issues that we haven't seen in the past um, there's a couple of things there that I disagree with. One is I think there used to be more grasslands in the Central Valley than there are now. Um, most, a lot of it's been converted to agriculture and, you know, urban areas. Um, and I, so I would argue that there used to be more grassland in the Central Valley than there is now. Um, and, you know, the Central Valley of California is, though it's been described as the Serengeti of North America, right? It's a vast plain of herbaceous vegetation yeah um and i would say that fire was a regular occurrence in the central valley in the grasslands of the central valley um all pretty much all the plants native plants you see in the central valley are adapted to fire in one way or another um i would say we're just more aware of it now because now we live there <laughs> right and more and more people live there and right. so um, you know it's like the whole thing if a tree falls in the forest does it make a sound well right. you know where fire happens in a place where no one lives, does anyone notice? Um, no, I think we just notice it more now. So, okay, um, so do, do you think then, so then in the in the vast grasslands, like way bigger fires were more common and we've just done a good job of keeping that from happening, but like but they're like a, like a big open grassland with a bunch of wind is commonly going to have like huge fires. Is that kind of the idea? I, the thing about fire in grassland is um, it moves by fairly quickly, like in a line right and right. it goes past and it's gone so grassland fires tend to be some of the more i mean low intensity fires but they have the potential to set a lot of structures on fire right like and, high higher acreage lower intensity but you're still going to sweep up structures with the wind there exactly and you know you look at like the fire that just happened up there in uh, southern oregon um along highway five what's the name of that town uh ashland I mean, yeah ashland and medford up there 
I, I was watching a video of a helicopter fly over that fire and um, a lot of what burned was grassy areas and um, residential and you know, like commercial buildings that were set on fire by the grassland. So there weren't a lot of trees involved. It was more of a, I would say, you know, a grassland kind of fire. Um, and, you know, we have those fires, you see them on the news almost every night, you know, in Stockton or Sacramento or something like that, where someone throws a cigarette out the window and it sets the... Right. It, it's, al it's almost like not alarming if you're on the highway going through there and you see a grass fire, like, oh, there's another one. And then they'll, they'll just get it out and, you know, however quick they can get it, usually. Yeah. And unfortunately, I mean, those fires move quickly and they set, um, they set a lot of structures on fire. Right. Yeah. As soon as, as soon as they get off the, as soon as they get out of hand, it's a real problem. Yeah. I think your question was kind of in a couple parts. One of it was, I think, is why are we seeing more or greater intensity? Yeah. That's, that's kind of, because my thought was like, I, I understand it in the forest where things are getting overgrown and there's more fuel than there used to be. Uh, excuse me. Sorry. Um, there's more fuel than there used to be, but it's like in the grasslands, it doesn't seem to be the case that there's more fuel available, but we're still seeing, more frequent fires and higher intensity than we're used to seeing. Yeah, and grasslands are just super flammable to start off with. Um, and like, you know, you've heard about, you know, fuel moisture, right? A, a wet piece of wood will not burn. Um, right. Neither will a wet piece of grass, but a piece of grass will dry out much faster than a piece of wood will. And so you can go from wet grass to dry, dry grass in a few hours with like right. a warm, and that might take that piece of wood, you know, hundred hours to dry out um so grasslands have much more opportunity to burn because of the, the flammability <laughs> um <laughs> but yeah um, i mean this whole idea of do we have more fires now than we used to i i can't answer that question right I yeah a lot of fire in california we have a lot of fire now um and every time you get into this time of year, you know, when fire is at the top of the news stories, um, everyone's like, oh, you know, how come we have so much more fire in California now? Um, I think we have probably the same amount, but it affects people much more these days because, you know, our population has grown much bigger. We've expanded into areas that we didn't used to be living, right. populations. Um, and so we notice it much more. Well, I mean, we're still setting records though, right? Like those two, like the, the one fire, the fire that comes to mind is what is it that, uh, the, not the glass fire. It was the, it was like a lightning complex fire there in the kind of the, the East Bay area that like between all those lightning strikes that we had, that was like, I think they set the record for first and second place. of the biggest fires in California's like recorded history. Like the top six or something this year. The largest fires in history don't call me on that but there's been a lot of the largest yeah, we're, we're setting records like left and right which is like so that that's kind of that's what i'm saying is that it's like it's like there's definitely like it's definitely more intense now than we've seen if they're able to say well, that's the biggest fire that we've ever recorded here but it's yeah how long have we been recording exactly yeah it's like so did it used to be just like millions of acres burn in a season and that was like normal Yes. For a fire to just sweep through the you know the the central valley there and just toast everything yeah but remember back in the back in the day when we had less fuels the fires weren't intense so they may have been just as large or even larger because no one was there to stop it right we didn't have right. 
Even even in the grasslands that you're saying, the fires would have been more in like there would have been less intense in a grassland, you know, 150 years ago. When I'm talking, no, I'm talking about um, like like woodlands and forests. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I like yeah, but in in the case of those two fires, those are like kind of more grasslands. I mean, in the in the back of the hills there, there's some oaks, but it's not like it, it's not a like a conifer forest at all. I'm not commenting on the intensity, but the size. Right, yeah, the size of those ones makes sense. So, like, historically, that would have been pretty common. I think so, yeah. Yeah, wow. Um, the other thing is, is um, yeah, I mean, you don't really get the, the fuel buildup in the grasslands as much as you get in the, in the woodland and forest communities. Right. Uh, there is a certain amount of fuel accumulation. I mean, if you, like, like just, like, your grass eventually you pretty thick you know mulch or um you know kind of thatch going right right um, once again compared to a woodland or a forest that's not a lot of fuel um so and and that's why the, the fires in the grasslands move so quickly is because they burn the fuel up really quick that's there um and and move on to the fuel adjacent um and I think there's also a, a, a certain amount of fuel that doesn't get burned in grassland fires because if you look at a grassland fire after it's burned and you kind of like scratch around under the black stuff, there's there's a, still a decent amount of fuel that's down there that hasn't burned just because of, you know, oxygen availability and stuff like that. Yeah, Maybe. I know, I know like with a with a couple of fires that have happened like in, this, in, a, in Jamestown and Sonora there in the foothills where the fires were like on properties of people that we knew, uh, I like, I always felt like once it happens, it's almost like you've been holding your breath the whole time. And then you kind of, whoo, like we got through it. Like it's not that big of a deal. And then the following spring, it looks awesome. Like it looks way better than everything that didn't burn. <laughs> you know? It's the, the vegetation. I mean, the vegetation really needs that fire to um, renew itself. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, that's always like the best deer hunting and the best like bird hunting too is all in that. Like it burned, it burned the year before. That's like, that's your hunting area the next year. Yeah. Always... You know, Native Americans, you know, burned in part because it improved their uh, hunting ability and, and uh, you know, the abundance of game and, and other things like you mentioned. Um, so that was one of the reasons they burnt was. Wow. Hunting. Yeah, they better 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 sight lines. Um, you know, the the prey can't hide as good. Um, but it also invigorates the vegetation to where there's more food available for the you know the the game, more berries, more, you know, um tender shoots, more new right. growth. Yeah, and you know, when we do um, you know, just from anecdotal observational things on campus um, after we burn um, you see more deer in those areas because they're feeding on the, the young shoots of the shrubs and, and things like that yeah 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 that's awesome man okay so so I guess that sort of leads us into like so if you at this point at the point that and, it, and this isn't like a unique to California problem obviously like obviously Oregon's got similar issues and Washington and a lot of other states but if you just had a magic wand you can write all of the forest management policy here going forward and you have all the money that you would possibly need at your disposal. What would you start doing that is not currently being done? What would I start doing that is currently not being done? I would, uh, I would probably, um, first of all, purchase equipment to do 
the type of thinning that needs to be done. Um, we're talking about like masticators and mulchers and stuff like that. Cause most of the fuel issues are with, you know, uh, ladder fuels and small suppressed trees and stuff like that. Um, and that requires specialized equipment, uh, which is not cheap. Um, like we recently, you know, purchased the excavator with the masticator on it, uh, masticator head on it. Right. Um, you know, get um, dedicated machines for that stuff too. Right. That, you know, Right. And, and, and just to be clear, we're talking that like masticator stuff, that's for a pretty large scale, but like, but for individual landowners, you can do that same work with a chainsaw and a lot of time, like you, sure. it can, it can be done, but, but yeah, we're talking like for massive scale. Yeah. You got to get like big masticators and get guys just chewing up ladder fuels throughout the forest. Yeah. So, and of course the people trained to run those things is necessary. Um, so that's one of the things I would do. And and, and um, as soon as, you know, we, we treat those areas and thin them out to the point where it's safe to underburn, you know, get fire in there as quickly as possible and then just repeat yeah. <laughs> over, because it's not going to be done after we treat it and burn it once. You know, after we, after we do that, we need to continually keep doing that over and over and over again, you know, every few years to right. um, yeah, you might not you might not even need the masticators after five six years of doing that. Yeah, once yeah. you can get the fire on the ground, you know, then you can let the fire do the work. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Awesome. I mean, do you yeah. think do you think that's possible? Like on a on a large like 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 I know I gave you like the magic wand option, but like, do you think like if if the state just came around and said, all right, like we're just gonna go start chewing through ladder fuels, and then we're gonna like five year plan. We're going to run through like as much acreage as we can with masticators and everything else and work on our like tree density. And then we're going to come through that in the following five years with fire. And like, if they just said they were going to do that, is it possible at this point to make up the ground that's been lost? Oh yeah. I think it's totally possible. Um, I mean, it's, it's going to be expensive and <laughs> it's right. I think the big inertia here, or not the big inertia, but uh, one of the big stumbling blocks is just public perception. There's still a lot of people that are like, oh man, it's smoky out. Why is it smoky out? And, and they, or they, they don't want people to do the burning because it's smoky. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Better, better smoky than on fire, I suppose. But. And that's, you know, when it comes to obstacles that I have in my path for doing that kind of thing, um, it's, we're, we're kind of hindered by a few things. One is the burn season. So Cal Fire determines when you can burn stuff, right? And so, you know, when the rains start, they suspend or they allow burning to begin again when the rains start. Um, and then when the rains stop, they suspend burning for the, the whole summer and into the fall, which makes a lot of sense because you don't want people... right and lighting fires but unfortunately oftentimes the best times to do prescribed fire are in those fringes of the season when it's still flammable enough right uh, as cal fire says it's okay to burn nothing will burn anymore <laughs> right yeah exactly yeah so the bet the best time is like two weeks after the closure and two weeks before it opens again <laughs> we're all you know cal fire is gonna allow burning here soon and then it rains for two weeks straight and then we can't burn anything because it's too wet. And so we have to wait for like 
odd, odd dry windows, which may or may not happen, you know, in the springtime to burn. And that's an unnatural time of the year for fires to be going. Um, so it would be, you know, it would be more ideal for us to be able to burn in the, in the fall before it gets wet. But I understand the, you know, yeah. the factor there, of course, but that's why you need to, you know, keep, look at the weather, right? And there needs to be a little bit of wiggle room between, you know, um, you can't burn it all and, um, you know, setting everything on fire, I guess. Um, right. What, what, what about ground nesting birds? Like, what about like, are there, are the bird species common in California? Like, are the ground nesting birds sort of adapted to that fire season that we've now interrupted? Like, even if you're going to start burning now, it's like, are there, are you, are you likely to start burning at a time when ground nesting birds assumed that it was safe? Yeah, no, the birds tend to um, nest in the springtime when there aren't a lot of fires. And so, um, that's the least of my concern is affecting birds. Uh, I mean, I don't want to hurt birds. I don't think I'm going to hurt birds. Um, um, I right, mean, but the, they, the, they shouldn't be an obstacle that is like so. creating this giant mess. Yeah. So yeah, I'll say that because that's another thing too, right? Like even if you, even if a, if like the political powers that be decided, okay, like the, what we need to do is start, like, yeah, investing in like heavy equipment and just start cutting down ladder fuels and then going through and burning stuff. It's like one of the obstacles they're going to run into, ironically enough, is environmental groups that are going to say, hey, you got like, what about the spotted owl nests? And what about, you know, like all the things that have already contributed to our like lack of, of logging industry in California? Wouldn't that also be a roadblock to like not having it burned to the ground? Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's the, the next point I was coming to is, People in general need to get out of the way. <laughs> Let forest managers do what they need to do. Um, you know, with social media these days, it's so easy for a forest manager who's trying to do the right thing to get shouted down by a bunch of people who have no idea what they're talking about. Um, and, and that's a reality. Um, and, you know, there's, there's two major sort of points of view that you see. There's um, the environmental community, and, and this is way oversimplifying it, but there are certain people in the environmental community that see any tree being cut down as a bad thing, right? Right. Um, at the same time, on the other side, on like the, the logging industry side, um, there's a big sort of get grazing slogan which i i can't stand that because oh, sorry sorry you, kinda, you broke up there for a second time you said on on the logging side there's a what now so on the logging side i was just going to say there's have you have you you've seen the log uh log it graze it or let it burn yeah but it's like pictures of like clear-cut <laughs> areas so that that log it graze it or or watch it burn slogan drives me nuts because it it offers a, a false dichotomy really right it says either you log it and graze it or it all burns down right and that's not really the the choice that we have right right yeah yeah it sort of sets up like uh well it's all going anyway you might as well profit from it and it's like well no it ignores the fact that fire is necessary right, right. or let it burn well we should be letting it burn <laughs> yeah right? but not not to the point where it destroys property and, and harms lives or, or destroys valuable timber. We don't want that either. But yeah. you need to let it 
burn to a certain extent. I mean, we right. can't just exclude fires. When, you, when I see those stickers, I'm, uh, you know, the steam comes out of my ears. And <laughs> I'm not, you know, uh, opposed to logging or burning or logging or grazing completely, although I think that they can be done in ways which are harmful. Um, they can also be done in ways which are beneficial. Um, and so we need to understand that. Um, and so we need to log, we need to graze, and we need to let it burn. Not, and, you know, there's that false or dichotomy that we have that, that we shouldn't be promoting. Yeah, it's just, it's hard, it's hard to get what you just said onto a bumper sticker, though, you know? <laughs> log it, graze it, let it burn fits wonderfully onto a bumper sticker, and it rolls off the tongue, and it's super catchy, and it's been very successful. Yeah. Uh, great it's a great sound bite but it, it it's not it's not a valid sort of management strategy let's put it yeah I'm, I'm just picturing like a prius with a bumper sticker that's like manage forests to a healthy density using fire logging and grazing in a way that is harmonious with the environment and the way it's been adapted like <laughs> a better sticker would be uh you know work with nature not against it there you go yeah but I mean, but that also kind of goes back to like, that's what everybody's saying, you know, like everybody claims that nature is like, you know, the people that are saying no logging whatsoever, like, no, because of nature. And it's like, well, well, yeah, but like, well, and but they, you got to do something here. <laughs> there's a lot of people that are spouting dogma and they don't understand, they don't understand the complexities behind it. Um, and that's why I don't, I don't, I try not to get in like, you know, arguments on Facebook with people about it because Oh man, yeah, you can't do that. Well, and also, I mean, how am I going to have a, a valid argument with someone who wouldn't even understand the fundamentals of it without, you know, going to school for 4 years, right? Right. You know, it's impossible to have a, a meaningful conversation if people don't have the basic understanding of how yeah, it's that that does seem to be like it's kind of funny. It's kind of like that's just sort of with the times lately. It seems like in order to have a conversation that is like mutually beneficial, there's so much undoing to do on both ends of the people that arrive usually. Like yeah. there there's a bunch of these held truths that they're then basing their arguments on that are like okay, well that like that held truth is where we need to start because that's not actually the way it is. And it's like, it creates like, it's not like everybody's just well-informed and has different opinions. It's like, no, there's, there's like a bunch of misinformed people arguing about which in, misinformed view is the best. Yeah. And it's just, it's kind of just a disaster when it comes to stuff like this. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to, at the risk of sounding elitist, some people just need to like stay in their lane and do it. <laughs> um, and I don't, you know, I don't know anything about, I'm not an economist and I keep my mouth shut when the economy because i don't know what, I, what i'm talking about yeah um, yeah it makes sense so i don't know yeah it's just it is kind of tough because it's like because it's been used and i know especially like like in the hunting world man public perception is used it's been curated very well to push certain laws through that have nothing to do with science, but everything to do with what makes the people feel good. And the problem is that it's like, it's created this sort of like, 
now they would have to backtrack and admit that like, okay, well, these laws are garbage also, but we made you feel good about it in order to sell it to you. So like, even when it comes down to like game management numbers or like, you know, it's like, it's like doe hunting is a commonly used management tool across the United States. As soon as Disney comes out with a Bambi movie, California moves legislation to ban doe hunting. And it's like, well, did you do that for science or did you do that because public perception had the wind in your sails? Yeah. And, uh, you know, Smokey the Bear, great example of that. Yeah, exactly. Smokey the Bear, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, it's like... The thing that ever fires in California was Smokey the Bear. Yeah. Yeah, it's Ironically. like... It, it cre- yeah, because it created this, like, the good guys stop fire, like, you know, idea yeah. in the minds of everybody, especially kids growing up. It's like... Oh, like Smokey the Bear, like they had to save him from a fire. Fire is bad. And it's like there's no cultural awareness of like, no, 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 like fires like while dangerous is an important tool that needs to be, you know. I think, yeah, I think we just need like a mental shift on that and how you bring that about. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Changing people's minds is uh difficult. Yeah absolutely so okay so so another question here is like okay so let's say you've recently moved into an area right and and you've been thinking about this stuff but you haven't really had time to act on it and now there's a fire ripping towards you i mean it's like that's to say it's too late i suppose is like if you want to take like a fatalistic view of it but yeah it's like kind of the stuff we went over before right so like okay there's a fire heading down to your place what are you thinking about and it's so I guess it would be like go along and make sure like worry about your debris collection points and worry about like you know do what you can to get fuels away from your house that sort of thing. I mean, it's not it's I not mean, necessarily hopeless. If there was a fire bearing down on my house, I would get my animals and loved ones out first. <laughs> yeah, Any valuables because you can't get. I mean, my house is not fire safe at all i mean it's made out of wood it's got a composite roof you know it was built in 1984 you know um i have no delusions of saving my house should a wind-driven wildfire come through this area right Um, all about you know getting out um do i i mean you know i said earlier it would be great if they let people stay and save their homes um i have you know i've got insurance <laughs> right <laughs> this house you know um i would rather just get all my all my you know dogs and cats and chickens and wife not necessarily in that order what <laughs> um and, and, you know maybe a couple you know mementos and valuables and 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 get out um even though i think i could survive a wildfire here um, I need to be, you know, taking care of all those other things. Right. It's not, it's not necessarily a bet that you, while you, like, while the odds are in your favor, it's not a smart bet to engage in in the first place. Exactly. And especially where I live. I mean, I live in, um, you know, a, the wildland urban interface right here and, you know, on the edge of the national forests um, in a subdivision, which is not fire safe at all. I mean, I've done a lot of thinning on my own property, which is not that big. I live on like, you know, slightly less than an acre. Um, and the first thing I did on my property was thin out all the excess vegetation. We still have a bunch of trees, but 
um, I've thinned it out to the point where I, um, I feel safer. Let's put it that way. Right. Um, yeah. But at the same time, if a wind driven fire came through, it would be all over this place. Right. To the ground. Um, so yeah. Um, you know, safety of my loved ones, I, I think is my number one priority and it's not going to be here. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, so on that note though, okay. So when you're saying you're going through and, and you're, you've, you've done what you can to like clear out brush and, and fuels and stuff where you can, if people are starting to do that, like how much clearance should people look for? Let's say they go out with the mindset, all right, I'm going to go out today and I'm going to start clearing ladder fuels off my property. How much clearance do, should they aim for between the ground and like where you're starting to see like canopy in, in, in the trees? Um, I like to be able to walk under my underneath the trees without, you know, hitting my head on stuff. <laughs> oh, okay. And about six and a half feet, and that is uh, that's plenty to keep if fires on the ground to keep it out of the trees. Um, right. As walk under it. Um, I think is it's a good, you know, limit up to head height. So how do you? Um, how it, would you navigate? Like, so let's say you've got a like you've got that that's your policy you like to be able to walk under the trees but what do you do with like younger trees that are not that height yet but that you want to keep like you you've you've got like you know a couple of young healthy trees that you're not just going to get rid of sure. like are they if you're going to have those shorter trees where the where that tree's limbs are closer to the ground do you just want to have enough space around it so that even if that tree burned it wouldn't burn the trees next to it is that yeah so you want to, when you're thinking about um, you know clearing around your house for fire safety, you want to break up the fuels to the point where fire can't you know run through the trees essentially. So as long as there's gaps between the trees where fire just can't go you know go from one tree to the next, that's kind of what you're looking for. And you don't want fire to go from the ground up into the canopy either. So there's a a sort of a horizontal separation between trees that you want, and then there's a vertical separation between you know surface fuels and the canopy and that that would be the ladder fuels that you want to get rid of um and you know i don't use any number per se but it's not just fire that we want to think of we want to think about the, the health of the trees themselves so when when you know trees are crowded together they're competing for water and nutrients and sunlight um and the more they're crowded together um the less every tree is going to get um the more space they have, on the other hand, the more water, nutrients, and light they're going to get, and the healthier they're going to be. And so, well-spaced trees are healthier trees that are more able to um, resist disease and, um, you know, drought um, mortality and things like that. So, I'm sitting in my backyard right now, and my backyard has oak trees in it. You know, live oaks, black oaks, things like that. Um, and my trees are essentially spaced good, like from canopy to canopy, good 10 feet from canopy to canopy. The trees themselves, like when you look where the trunks go into the ground are probably more like 25 to 30 feet apart, um, more in some areas. Um, and so I have like kind of an oak savanna kind of going on in my backyard with widely scattered oak trees with space in between them, still provides shade still aesthetically pleasing um but there's no way a fire that isn't driven by wind could you know get up into those trees right yeah that makes sense 
So, okay. So that being the case, so like, so what we're seeing in California now, California, and actually I'm, I'm in Arizona now and we're, we're seeing the same sort of beetle infestation things starting to happen, but that's largely due to the density, right? Like it's an already overgrown forest. All of those smaller trees are competing for water, which is making them like, it's making them already stressed and susceptible to beetle infestation. Is that sort of like a, like a accurate summary of what's causing that? Yeah, we recently had a lot of tree mortality here, which was mostly due to a drought, um, but also due to the fact that the density of the trees was too high. And so they were competing for what little water there was. Right. There it's, were, it's that they're all competing. They were already competing for not enough water. And then a drought comes and just exacerbates the whole thing, right? Yeah. And the beetles were just a symptom of that. You know? Right. People point the fingers at the beetles, but the beetles were just taking advantage of the situation. Right. Yeah. They're they're not an invasive thing, right? The beetles were always there. They just had a really good couple of years here, right? Correct. Right. Yeah. So okay. So let's say, let's say that California's and just the Western forests in general had been managed properly this whole time, while we are seeing upward trends in global temperatures right like how much of an effect would that be having if the forest was like just the way it was supposed to be because i've got people asking me about like like in people's minds they're think like guys guys like in my target audience right that are like they're starting to look at properties and they're wanting to be more self-sufficient and they're and they're thinking about this stuff part of their thought process is should i move farther north to get ahead of climate change like is moving north of, of like a smart thing to think about and in my mind it's like well i mean i don't know that if you're going to stay in the united states as far north as you can get those the things that are affecting california are also at play in montana right it's just that montana's had a different management practice and i'm not sure that those few degrees of latitude are actually that big of a game changer are they or is that something that they should think about and is are we already at the point of moving north equals a little bit more safe um, I'd move north if I could, um, just because I like the temperatures better. Um, yeah, moving north is an option. There's always Alaska. Right, um, yeah. And Canada, if you don't mind leaving the country. Um, and plenty of other parts of the world. Hey, you can just move really far south, too. Um, but, yeah, if you want to stay in the United States, your options are sort of limited. Um, but, um, you know, compare the West Coast, which is, you know, a lot of it's a Mediterranean climate, at least east of the Sierras and the or west of the Sierras and Cascades. If you move to like, you know, Minnesota or Wisconsin, not as, you know, those are not as fire prone. Um, and that's because they have a different climate. You know, they have a, they get rained on all summer long. Um, and then they get snow all winter. So while they still have wildland fires in the Midwest, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, places like that. Um, you're not going to have the fire problems that we have here because here it stops raining in May and doesn't start raining again until November. Right. And so yeah, it's north, but you could move into, you know, more, more moist climates, you know, the, the East coast, you know, Florida, the South Gulf States. Right. But, but I guess, I guess my question is that it's like, because that would be the case if the climate had not changed at all. Like if the climate was the same, like, if there had like humans had no impact on anything the climate had not changed and had been exactly the same for the last 400 years right that would still be true you could still move north and the temperatures would be cooler and fire might be less frequent 
but you're not like even now moving north you're not getting ahead of climate change by by very much right it's not like climate change is affecting california more than it is the northern latitudes is it or is that like if they're if they're thinking of it in the way that like well if they're just outrunning climate change is that really worth the investment or should you just move there for those reasons like temperature different like you know the just the natural less frequency of fire to begin with not for not because of climate change but because that's how that climate has been uh, I understand your question um, I, like, like I, said, I guess like the does the concept of moving north to outrun climate change make sense or is it just you should move north because that's like generally a better thing to do anyway um, I think it makes sense I mean for the short span that our lives are yeah I mean if you don't if it's too hot for you you know here you move north or there's less fires less north yeah I mean um, I mean, climate change is affecting the whole planet, but it's affecting it different areas in different ways. And if your goal is to move out of an area that's going to be more prone to fire, um, moving north could work. Um, right. I would say that there's less fire. I mean, not this year. There seems to be fire everywhere, but um, I mean, you know. I mean, you what the west coast of Washington and Oregon are uh, are you know rainforests essentially, um, right. where you don't the fire. Um, the fires that we're seeing in Oregon and Washington now are mostly in the the Cascades, you know, where we have a similar sort of climate that we have here in the Sierra Nevada, maybe a little cooler, but right. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, uh, Oh, that makes sense. And, and the management practices, like, this is not, like, the problem that California has. This isn't a state, well, well, I suppose it is, but, like, it's not wholly a state policy thing, right? This is also, like, a federal thing, and that's why it's affecting multiple states in the same way, right? It's not like, California is not the only one to be making these mistakes, right? No. Um, there's people that are wanting to point fingers at whoever they don't like and, and blaming them for all the problems in the world, and that's going on. Um, but, uh, you know, when you look, so yeah, I mean, California is broken up into, you know, federal land and that's all the national forests and national parks and BLM and Bureau of Reclamation and military bases and all that stuff. And, um, then we have, you know, state owned land, which is actually not that much state owned land. And, and then there's a lot of private property. Um, and so, um, we have the same problem across all those administrative units federal state and private um you know i was i was on a field trip with one of my classes in to forestry last week and we were up in long barn and we drove through the you know the private part of long barn where all the houses were and it was a fire disaster waiting to happen because no one you know took care of their vegetation right reason. and then you drove right off the private land onto the national forest land and it was some of the most beautifully managed forests you'd ever seen and it was part of a you know a fuel break that the national forest had put in to protect Longmar. Um, and so it's not always you know the federal property is not being managed properly or the state property is not being managed properly or the private property is not being managed properly i think it's very location dependent there's some federal and state lands that are being um, managed wonderfully 
would it be fair to say then that it, we might just be dealing with like a wave like a perception wave so it's like so so it starts in the early 1900s forest service says put them out by 10 a.m the public begins to see that as like a good thing and it's common like you know if you're if you're looking at the forest service as an example back then the public is starting to see that and then like after some years of that happening, the public starts to see what the forest looks like. And then they think, oh, it's fine if my property looks like that. So they're starting to mirror what they're seeing done. But then now, to the Forest Service's credit, as they're starting to sort of correct, the public hasn't caught on to that yet. Like the cultural shift is not happening in the public quite yet. In the same, like, is it possible that it's just like there's like a perception lag? No, I think there's more of a it's not my problem thing. Oh. <laughs> someone else's problem to deal with um because and like in my neighborhood i see and they don't want to deal with it many because you know out of one side of their mouth they'll say you know we need to manage the forest better and out of the other side of their mouth they're saying oh we need all these shrubs and trees around my house for privacy <laughs> right <laughs> so you can't have both of them um yeah. you know in my neighborhood um it's probably maybe like one out of 20 properties is properly managed yeah um, i mean I, I guess that's probably where the most good could be done right is the private landowners that just don't that just aren't aware or or just have crossed up ideas like that like they're they're more worried about aesthetics than fire readiness but it's like but if you could if you could change that and you could get the public sort of moving in a direction culturally where we understand fire and we understand what to look for and, and kind of how those management practices work. If you could, even if the federal government didn't respond to that, like even if the federal government just did its own thing and didn't sort of start to correct itself, if the general public was aware of this stuff and, and took to doing those practices, if a fire came in off of federal land into private land, the impact would be less, right? Like that's if oh, yeah. everybody just was made themselves ready. And yeah. And we need to get away from the, it's, you know, they're not doing it right. They're not doing it right to this. We're not doing it right. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, <laughs> take some ownership in there. Yeah, take some ownership. Um, and, uh, we need to, you know, we need to embrace fire like we do and deal with the, like we do rain and wind and any other natural phenomenon. You know, we wouldn't, we don't live in paper houses because the rain would destroy them, right? Right. And we don't live in straw houses because the wind would blow them down. And why do we live in houses that are made out of flammable stuff in a place where fire is going to occur just as naturally as rain and wind does. Right. Um, we, we have made, we have taken fire and made it this horrible, bad thing and tried to fight it. And, it, and, and we can't, we're not going to win that game. Yeah. Yeah. We it's like we've, we've created this horrible, like, like, you know, the old saying like pay once now or pay twice later. Yeah, like we're we're in the middle of paying twice later right now. Every time I see that, you know, seven forty seven super tanker in the air, I'm thinking it's making it worse. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love to see the super tankers because you know they're they're saving you know lives and property. But um, right as a general practice, that makes it worse. Yeah, and um, you know when you listen to the conversations. 
at the same time you hear we need to do something about it and then we also at the same time here put it out put it out yeah yeah that's <laughs> like it's like i get i get frustrated with in in both directions is yeah it's like on the one hand and and i know plenty of people that are like this it's like they'll they'll sit around and and talk for hours about how the forest service has mismanaged things but and and they're like salty about it which is you know like fair play like you know there's there's things to be frustrated about but yeah like so there's there's ownership also to be taken but then it's like the other side of the coin is i get mad when like the governor of california comes out and he's like see climate change is real and it's like well well, yeah, but like that's that's just as frustrating to me as people turning a blind eye to things that they could do, you know, to make this better. Well, I, um, unfortunately, that climate change became a political issue thanks to Al Gore. Who yeah. Made it, right. And before that, it wasn't a political issue; it was a scientific issue. Right. And the fact that climate change has become politicized is is um, terrible because, you know now we're never going to get anything done on it yeah that and it's like to me it's like god it's so interesting like if it had just been left as this like no this is a scientific thing like there's nothing to be argued about it's like if you just look at it it it's like it's this beautiful like systematic thing that you can look at and observe and think like wow that's cool like well i mean not while not our impact on it might not necessarily be cool but it's still a fascinating phenomenon to learn about and if you've got a political roadblock in your brain about why not to learn about that or why to overplay it in the learning about it, it's like, God, now you're just, it's just a, it's like you've ruined this beautiful concept that you could go learn about. And it could be really interesting in the subject of really like healthy debate. Yeah. Well, I remember when I first heard about it, I was like, I think it was 1994 and I was a graduate student, uh, at least in an academic setting. I, I was a graduate student at Arizona state and we had, you know, scientists that would come through and give lectures and one came through and gave a lecture on you know how they were there was this observatory in hawaii that was taking co2 readings and you know over a long period of time and how they correlated with temperature and things like that and um you know the science all makes sense um to me um but yeah it's turned into a it's, it's turned into much more than than right you know, yeah, I, I, I put some of that, like, yeah, like, so, like, if you, like, if you go back now and you watch that, what is it, uh, The Inconvenient Truth, like, if you go back and watch it now, it's, like, it's, it's almost laughable at, like, some of the predictions that they made, which is, like, which that makes you be, like, ah, oh, come on, man, like, no wonder, like, you can't be mad at people, well, I mean, you can't, you can see your way to seeing how there are such thing as climate deniers. It's like, well, Al Gore said we were going to be in hell by 2014. You know, like this, like that's what we were told. And so there's room opened up now for this, like, no, none of it's true. And it's like, well, that's not, that's not it either. <laughs> that's what Al Gore said. But I think he said that there would be like, you know, bigger storms, more flooding, you know, more fires, more disease, all that kind of stuff. And I would say in general, a lot of right, that yeah. stuff. In, in gen, yeah, in, in the long lens of things, he's right. Yeah. I mean, if that film had been done by, you know, Steven Spielberg as opposed to Al Gore, we probably wouldn't be arguing about it right now. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I guess there was that Day After Tomorrow movie that sort of like was an intro into that 
Like that was the like didn't that come first? Wasn't there that movie about like an ice age happening and then soon thereafter the the actual conversation about climate change sort of came up. Not the but, day after tomorrow was about nuclear winter. No, it's about a no, actually like now now you got to go back and watch it. It's about the climate changing due to sea current like disruption and it kicks the globe into a into an ice age like immediately, but it's because of like ocean currents. I haven't seen that. But yeah, yeah it's, it's it's a classic. <laughs> right on. I said the day after tomorrow. That was a there was a movie about uh about nuclear war. I thought it was called The Day After Tomorrow. Or that was called After maybe. That was called The Day After. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. I, it's all it's all fun and games. So that stuff's like Hollywood's perception on this stuff is always probably better for entertainment than anything. Yeah, but I agree. I mean, um, all all political um, bias aside, I hate it when people, you know, use climate change as a political tool, one way or the other. Um, yeah, you know, um, on both sides, it drives me nuts. Um, yeah, because it's because it oversimplifies it, and um, and just by oversimplifying it, I mean you're essentially being untruthful. Yeah. Not, not just that, but it's sort of, it's like, in my mind, at least it's used by both sides of the argument to just relieve themselves of responsibility for anything. Cause it, cause it's easy to say, Oh, well, if the forest service's fault, it's not your fault. And if it's climate change's fault, it's not your fault. You know, like there's it, but it also like robs people of the feeling that there's anything to be done, which is sort of what led me to this conversation, which is like, no, there, there are things to be done. There are like, like you, you can hold that climate change is a, is like a global phenomenon and a fact that's happening. And you can also hold that the Forest Service has done things that are less than optimal. But then with all of that being true, there is still room for people to do things on their own. Like there's, there's still readiness to be acquired for yourself. It's not, it's not just as simple as climate change is real or oh, the Forest Service. It's like there's, there's all this middle ground that people just generally aren't aware of. Yeah, and there's a lot that you can do to make a difference despite climate change. Um, and then, you know, this brings me to, you know, uh, uh, you know, there's the famous quote from uh, Trump about how you got to rake the forest, and I forget exactly what the quote is. And he got a lot, yeah. of, he got a lot of ridicule for that. But I think it's only because of the terminology. He yeah, used he, to. yeah, same, same thing. Where it was like, I felt the same way. Where it was like, oh man, he's like, God, like conceptually, you're not wrong, but like, God, your delivery sucks. <laughs> the wrong choice of words. Um, you know, uh, we spend a lot of time raking. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, rake is rake some giant piles, lit them on fire. Yeah, and you know we use a rake to, you know, to make fire lines. Um, and you can you, raking helps. There's no question about it. Um, and I think that you know when I see um, folks from the left ridicule him for saying that, I'm just like, come on, people. I mean, you're gonna ridicule him for saying to rake the forest. Um, essentially that's what we need to do you know yeah I have a, it's orange and it says kubota on the side um <laughs> yeah exactly yeah but i mean it's like but you could also get equally as frustrated and be like god man if you're gonna bring up complex like forest management practices do it smart like, <laughs> you can't bake it all down to well just rake things it's like oh that's that's just as much of a sin in my mind as it is to rake him over the coals for for having said it yeah, yeah. I mean, it could have been said much more articulately and and accurately, uh, but um, in essence, you know, using 
yeah. his language. Yeah, gr- ground fuel management is obvious. Yeah, that's like he's right on. But uh, to to just bake it down to that statement is like, uh, oh man. I would say that that's more valid than log it, graze it, and or watch it burn. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be that. That should be our new bumper stickers. Like, start raking. Yeah, start raking. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying like I'm totally like on board with um, his forest management policies, but. Um, yeah i mean right yeah it's not it's not that statement is not as wrong as he was made to like look like they they used it as a real like oh look how dumb he is and it's like well it's like well yeah not elegant but not wrong either yeah definitely there's definitely yeah but like i said we we see that that same sort of that same sort of political gamesmanship is the stuff that i think is like it's sort of the root of all of these problems very much so yeah yeah man well, hey, Tom, we've been on for almost an hour and a half, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to him. Yeah, like I said, it's it's great to hear from you again, and it's it's awesome to to go over all this stuff. Like like I, this this is the stuff that I just I love. Like I love the science behind it. I love the concepts. And I love seeing it sort of like I love seeing it play out when it plays out right. And uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, thanks so much for coming on, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Right now, I was can't wait to get on campus and start start uh, burning stuff as soon as we can yeah and, uh, hey actually it'd be great if you could send me some uh some pictures and stuff i'll, I'll put them up on the podcast page so people can kind of see what we're talking about and sort of sort of examples from there at the campus that'd be awesome yeah I would love- hey where do you live in arizona now? i'm in flagstaff yeah I- yeah, we're we're here for for the rest of the year here. Well, my wife's going to nursing school, so we're yeah, and then and then we're not sure what's going on after that. But happy <laughs> for a while. I couldn't wait to get out of that shithole. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Flag Flagstaff's nice though. It's it's like the South Lake Tahoe of Arizona. You know, it's like yeah. I agree. If I was going to live in Arizona, Flagstaff would be among my top choices. Yeah, it's great. Well, anyway, but yeah, right. again, man, I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. And I'm um, looking forward to seeing the podcast. Yeah, thanks. All right. Well, hey, have a good one. All right. Take care, George. All right. Bye.